Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. God, we thank you for the privilege of having your word and being able to study it and being able to um, spend time meditating on your word, on your revelation. And thank you that you have given us uh, insight and understanding. Thank you that you've given us the mind of Christ. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would give us understanding now as we, um, as we get to the end of Daniel. I pray that you'd speak to us by your Spirit. I pray that you'd glorify your name. I pray that you lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Daniel 11, and this is, this is it. This is it. This is the end of uh, Daniel. We're going to do an overview of Daniel 11 and 12, and I'm going to tell you a couple of secrets. One of them is, well, they're not going to be secrets after I tell them, but one of them is, I'm, I'm glad that we're done with Daniel. I love Daniel, but it's, it's, it's rough. Uh, and so I don't think I'm going to preach Daniel again until I'm like, 70 or something like that. So come again for that. Um, the other secret that, the, or I guess, yeah, the other secret that I want to share with you is that whenever I name a series, I don't really know exactly what the whole book is all about. You know, like, I, of course, I do my studying and I, you know, read the book multiple times and read commentaries and resources. But Every time that I get to the end of the series, I think, you know what? I don't think I think I could have named it this, right? And and of course, I have the the vantage point of having already studied the entire book, and then being able to say, you know what? This is what the series will be called. So, I think that title is great. I'm not going to change it. We're going to leave it like that. Uh, Faithfulness in exile. But one of the things that that we see in Daniel, and we we saw it early on is that there are two, two aspects of, of faithfulness, or, or not two aspects, but I guess there's one more thing that I would add to it. If I were to rename the series, again, we're not going to do this, but if I were to rename the series, uh, I would call it something like living wisely and faithfully in exile, right? So I'm adding that aspect of wisdom, living wisely and faithfully in exile, and the reason why I would do this is because the themes of faithfulness and wisdom are so present in the book of Daniel. They are so important, right? Especially in, in the first half of the book, we see a lot the aspect of faithfulness, right? We see Daniel being faithful, Daniel and his friends being faithful to God, not wanting to, to you know, sin against God by, by eating the food that they were offered. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were faithful to God. They did not want to worship the image. Um, Daniel was faithful to God and he continued to pray to God even though when it was you know, forbidden for him to pray and that's why he was uh, thrown into the, into the lion's den. So we see that aspect of faithfulness, but we also see the aspect of wisdom. And we're going to see it more particularly 
in these last two chapters. Now, let me just say, if you read Daniel 11 and 12 ahead of time, which I fully expect you to have done, uh, no, if you read them ahead of time, um, you probably know by now that we're not going to cover the whole thing. We're not even going to attempt to cover the whole thing. This is going to be more of an overview. I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about some of the themes, some of the theological truths that we see here, and hopefully this will help you in your own study of the Bible when you go and, and, and uh, read Daniel again. Hopefully all of us will have a better idea of what, you know, the whole of, the whole of Daniel is about, especially this last section. Uh, all right, so... Daniel is seeing in this last vision, remember that we started last week with Daniel 10, where Daniel sees, uh, uh, you know, this vision of where arguably the Lord himself appears to Daniel, and he is giving him this vision, this revelation of what's going to happen in the future. And basically, the, the overarching theme of these visions that Daniel has been receiving is that the kingdoms of the earth, they will continue to exalt themselves. The kings of the earth, they will continue to seek power. They will continue to try to get themselves above God. But ultimately, those who are wise will be delivered from the power of darkness. Right? So that, that's, that's ultimately the main point that I would like to make today, that the kingdom of darkness will continue to rage against God but those who are wise will be delivered from the power of darkness. And now, of course, we're going to define what I mean by those who are wise, right? Because right now, those who are wise. Oh, so are you saying that if I'm a little on the dumber side, then I'm not going to be delivered? No, that's not what I mean. We're going to get to that eventually. Uh, but let's talk about perspective for a moment. So the visions, the prophecies that Daniel is receiving in these chapters... From Daniel's perspective, they are future to him, right? So when Daniel is receiving these prophecies, they are about the future from his perspective. And this is, this is amazing because if you, if you read the chapter, you see the detail that he is receiving about what's going to happen in the future. And it's amazing. It's so amazing that it has led many liberal theologians, and by liberal mean I people who don't believe in the word of God, I don't know why they spend their lives studying the Word of God if they don't believe in it, but people who do not believe in miracles and all of that, this has even led people to say, you know what, I think that Daniel 11 and 12, they were actually written after these things happened, right? Because, because the, the level of accuracy in the prophecy is so specific that to them there's no other explanation, right? Of course, for us, the explanation is, well, the same God that delivered Daniel from the lion's den and the same God that delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the same God that did all of these miraculous things is the same God that can prophesy, that can give us prophecy about what's going to happen in the future, right? So there's no reason for us to, to question that at all. We know that this, from Daniel's perspective, is something that's going to happen in the future, from his perspective. Now, from our perspective, a lot of these things already happen in history. Um, if you 
I sent an article on, on an email, and then later I realized that the article was probably even more difficult than the passage itself. But uh, if, you read the, if you read the article that I sent on an email, you will have found out that all of these, you know, all of the conflict that is found in Daniel 11, you can actually go back and trace it back in history. Like you can actually look at history books and you can identify pretty much every one of these kings that are named here. You can identify them with a historical person. Now, that's true of most of chapter 11. But then eventually, at, toward the end of chapter 11, you get to a point where all of a the sudden there are things that we can't really identify with people in history. And so this is where it, get, where it gets a little bit more complicated. This is where some people have said, oh, well, maybe this is talking about something that is still future to us, right? And, and this is where, you know, I, I think a lot of the discussion in, you know, when, when you're talking about the end times and stuff like that, this is where a lot of discussion happens, right? And saying, oh, maybe these verses are about the Antichrist or maybe they are about the, you know, the end times or, or whatever it is. Now, we are not really going to dive into that. Because I'm fully convinced that if we, if we could argue about that or we could discuss that until Jesus returns and we will still be arguing, okay? So I'm not necessarily going to dive into all of that. Um, again, the point that I want to make clear for all of us is that the kingdom of darkness will continue to rage, but those who are wise will be delivered from the power of darkness. All right, so the reality is that there is a constant struggle between the kings of the earth, the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of God. And uh, God's people will be stuck in the middle of this conflict until Jesus returns, right? So whether, whether some of these things are talking about, you know, a final antichrist or whether some of them are talking about you know, Antiochus Epiphanes in, from the Greek empire, ultimately we know that this conflict between good and evil is a reality that all of us are in the midst of, right? The kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God, and we who belong to God, we are stuck in the middle of this. And so this passage helps us understand how to live in the middle of hostility to God's people, in the middle of persecution, and even death. So what is Daniel 11 all about? Well, to answer this question, we have to talk about Taylor Swift. <laughs> and the reason why we have to talk about Taylor Swift is because, uh, well, as you know, Taylor Swift is probably the most popular artist in the world today. And as I was studying this, this passage, and, and you're probably going to lose respect for me here, but as I, was, as I was studying this passage, one thing that kept coming to mind is that line from Taylor Swift, and I am absolutely not going to sing it, but you know that song that says, shake it off, I shake it off, and it says, <laughs> and it says uh, players going to play, 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 play. Hater is going to hate, 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 okay? I'm doing my best not to sing it. Um, well, my point here is that tyrants are going to tyrannize, 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 tyrannize. Okay, like in this constant power 
of struggle, or sorry, in this constant struggle for power, all of these rulers, all of these tyrants, they will just continue to tyrannize. They will just continue to seek power for themselves. They will try to, 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 to exalt themselves above God. And so this is basically what most of, what all of chapter 11 is about. So without going into detail, verses 2 through 4 is a summary of the Persian Empire and a summary of the Greek Empire. And so notice, this is something that I've mentioned before, but notice how little space is devoted to such huge empires, right? In God's economy and God's history, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, they're not really that great, right? They're not really that great. Alexander the Great, he's not really that great, right? Look at how how quickly they race to they they arise to power and they lose it. So for example in verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is Alexander the Great, right? This is arguably one of the most incredible uh generals and rulers in history. Verse 4, and as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So this amazing, incredible kingdom is taken away from him, and he's not even able to inherit that kingdom to his children, but rather is divided between his four generals, right? And that's that. That's the end, that's the end of, of Alexander the Great. And then verses 5 through 20, and and. Yeah, verses 5 through 20 is basically a detailed prophecy about the conflict that would happen between the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of of the south. Now, the kingdom of the north is the Seleucid Empire. The kingdom of the south is the the Ptolemaic Empire from Egypt. And again, we're not going to go into all of this detail, but basically it is a a really specific prophetic word about how these two dynasties, the Seleucid dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty, how they will war against each other. But now, why do you think that the Bible focuses on this obscure moment in history? Who is stuck in the middle of Syria and Egypt? Right? These two empires are fighting against each other. Who is in the middle of that? It's Israel, right? God's people, God's chosen ones, they are in the middle of that. And so, of course, this history or this prophecy pertains to Daniel because it's talking about the suffering that God's people are going to endure. And remember, Daniel is receiving these prophecies and, and, you know, his first expectation when he read Jeremiah is that the people of Israel are going to go back to Jerusalem and they will be happily ever, they will live happily ever after. And remember the answer that he gets from Gabriel? Gabriel says, uh, yes, you're going to return to Jerusalem, but that's not it. There's actually going to be more time added before, before you know, the, the, the salvation of people actually happens. And guess what? Jerusalem will be destroyed, right? That's basically what Gabriel is telling Daniel. So, of course, imagine Daniel trying to figure out how God's will is going to pan out for his people And he is given this further information that these two kingdoms are going to be at war with each other and Israel is going to be stuck in the middle of it. 
But one thing that we see here from these kings that are mentioned, again, is that tyrants are going to tyrannize. Tyrants will do what tyrants do. They will exalt themselves. They will seek what belongs to God. And they will, in the process, become enemies of God. And therefore, they will become enemies of God's people. And that's something that we read over and over in these verses, that they go and fight the king of Egypt, and then on their way back, because they're so angry because they lost, they destroy the people of Israel, right? They destroy the temple. They, they do all of these horrible things. So even though these things are things that have already happened in the past, these are things that have already happened been fulfilled, I think, you know, one question for us is like, well, so what's, what's the point of reading a passage like this? And I think one of the points of reading a passage like this is that it tells us, it, it, it kind of gives us a model of evil rulers, right? It gives us something to expect. We will always see this in history. It's not just something that happened at the beginning of, uh, sorry, it's not just something that happened in this particular time in history. It's not only something that happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. It's not only something that will happen at the very end of history with Antichrist. It is rather something that is happening over and over and over. God's kingdom, or I should say the, the, the kingdom of darkness, is at war with God's kingdom. Let's, let's, uh, let's play a little game to illustrate this, okay? This game is Guess Who? I am going to describe a ruler, and you are going to tell me who I am referring to, okay? So, this is a political leader. He rose to power through deceit, manipulation, and flattery. I can see you're already going, oh, I know, I know who it is. So, this person is power hungry and will do anything to get more power. His heart is bent on doing evil. He is a liar. He is wealthy, but it is through dishonest gain. He has set himself against God and against God's people. He seeks to exalt and magnify himself above every, everything else, every God. And he speaks against God. Who is it? Nebuchadnezzar, any other guesses? Any other guesses? Trump or Putin, all right. Keep it going. It's, it's all of them, right? It's all of them. The answer is, it's all of them, right? This is a continual pattern of evil where rulers come into power and they are so drunk with power that they seek to exalt themselves against God. And they end up becoming enemies of God. They end up persecuting God's people. This is a pattern that we see throughout history. And this is a pattern that we will continue to see. The kingdom of darkness will continue to produce rulers that will set themselves against God and persecute his people. But here's what is certain for us. Here's where we, where we can get hope. Is that it doesn't matter how hard they try, their power is always taken away from them. Right? We see that multiple times in this chapter. So let me give you a couple of examples. We already saw the one of Alexander. Um, 
verse 12. This is another king. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. And then verse 18, this is a different king. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Next one. This one only gets one verse. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So what's the point here? All of these rulers, all of these mighty rulers, all of these people that, to the people that were living at the time that they were ruling, they seem like the worst, the absolute worst enemy. And how on earth are we going to survive this tyranny and only one verse is devoted to them with such an anticlimactic end, right? They exalted themselves. They did all of these things. And then, poof, it came to nothing. They did, basically, like, they disappeared. Like, it, do, it doesn't even say how they died, right? It just says, oh, yeah, and, you know, he shall not be found. That's it, right? And so this should give us hope, right? This should bring us to not lose hope in knowing that, it doesn't matter in, in what type of, you know, uh, moment in history we find ourselves. It doesn't matter if we are, you know, seeing tyranny from our rulers, our governors, or from whoever it is. We, can, we do not lose hope because we know that evil will meet its end, right? Even if, if you know, we might not be talking about, like, like, countries and nations. We can just be talking about evil in our own lives. We can just be talking about, you know, family who are upset at us because of our faith in, in Christ or illness or anything related with evil, any, anything where the kingdom of darkness is still holding any power. We can have hope because we know that that will come to an end, that nothing that exalts itself against God can remain forever. Only the kingdom of God remains forever. Remember the visions that Daniel had in chapter, well, actually chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar and then chapter 7 was Daniel. In chapter 2, remember that Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue, right, made out of different materials and it's this, you know, incredible statue and, and he's super worried because he cannot figure it out. And so Daniel comes and tells him the revelation or the interpretation of, of the dream that he had. And basically, the interpretation is that all of these different materials of this statue represent different kingdoms that are exalting themselves one after the other. But then a stone that is, made out, made out, that is not made out with human hands, this stone comes and breaks the statue. It shatters it to pieces. Like, it says that the pieces cannot even be found of how shattered they are. And then this stone becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. And we know that that mountain that covers the whole earth is God's kingdom, right? So tyrants can continue to tyrannize. Rulers can continue to exalt themselves. But only God's kingdom prevails, right? There's another vision that Daniel has in chapter 7. And again, well, this time Daniel is seeing uh, beasts that are coming out of the ocean, 
And, and these beasts represent kingdoms. But then notice what he sees in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And then notice what is said about his kingdom and his dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All the other kingdoms will be destroyed. All the other nations will be destroyed. But God's kingdom, the kingdom that he has given to Jesus and that he has given to his people, that is the only kingdom that will not be destroyed. And so this should encourage us to not set our hope on earthly kingdoms, on earthly rulers, on earthly nations, but rather we should set our hope in God's kingdom. Everything else will be shaken and fall, but God's kingdom cannot be shaken. And as the author of Hebrews says, we have received that kingdom. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So why would we waste our time setting our hope and investing our time and our money and, and everything that God has given us, investing it in those things that will be shattered when we could be, when we could be fully devoted and invested in the kingdom of God? Notice what God says about these earthly kingdoms. In Isaiah 40, verse 15, God, uh, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then verses, verse 22, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Right? Why would we serve these rulers that are brought to nothing? Why would we serve these nations that are like a little drop in a bucket when we have God who is so much greater than them? So, in this constant struggle between the kingdom of darkness and God's kingdom, there is a group of people that stand out. And these are those who are wise. Those who are wise. So we read in Daniel 11, uh, verse 32. In verse 32, there is, a, there is a switch in subject, right? So all the way through chapter 11, the subject is the kings, right? The kings who are exalting themselves. Eventually, it starts talking about more specific, specifically about Antiochus Epiphanes. But then verse 32, the subject changes to God's people. It says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So that's still the king. That's Antiochus. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, 
purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So we see here a group of people who are called the wise, right? And so that kind of that kind of leaves us wondering, like, all right, so who are these people? Who are the wise? And well, in this particular context, when Antiochus Epiphanes is persecuting the people of God, the wise are those who know their God, those who remain faithful to God, those Jews that at the time, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of massacre and destruction, they remained faithful to God, right? But I think we can apply this to ourselves as well. And we can say, you know what? I want to be counted with the wise. In the middle of persecution, in the middle of this conflict between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, I want to be counted with the wise. And so I think we get some clues about who the wise are in Daniel 9, verse 13. And in Daniel 9, remember, Daniel is praying and asking God for forgiveness for uh, the sins of the people. And so we're going to get actually a negative picture or the opposite of who the wise are. So in verse 13, Daniel says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight or wisdom, understanding, by your truth. So, who are the wise? The wise are those who seek God's favor. The wise are those who seek God's grace. Right? The wise are not those who come to God and say, look, God, look how smart I am. Look how incredible I am. Look how well I have performed. Look at all the good things that I do. Rather is, God, I need your grace. I am so dependent on your grace. There is absolutely nothing I can do apart from your grace. Those are the wise. Again, the wise are not those who come and commend themselves to God and say, look at me, God. But rather they say, Lord, have mercy on me. I need your favor. I need your grace. The wise are also those who uh, turn away from iniquity, so turn away from sin. The wise are those who do not engage in the sin of the world, who do not engage in the sin of the kingdom of darkness, right? The kingdom of darkness is promoting evil. 1 John 1.15 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But the wise are those who abstain themselves from sin. And when they sin against God, they come asking for even more mercy, even more grace. And they repent and they come back to the path of righteousness. And then the wise are those who gain insight or understanding by God's truth. The wise are those that are continually coming back to God's truth, to God's word, to the Lord Jesus. Right, the world, and 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 the you know the world that is in the in the power of the evil one will continue to try to indoctrinate us. Right, it will continue to try to get us to believe the lies of the enemy. But those who are wise, they come back to God's word. God's word is their guide. God's law is their compass. And here's a, a, a good opportunity to give you a little commercial after this series. We are starting a new series in 
the Ten Commandments, right? We're going to talk specifically about God's law, about God's truth. But anyway, that's to be, that you know, that's for another time. But God, uh, the wise are those who seek understanding in God's truth. Now, this wisdom is not self-attained. This wisdom is not something that we can figure out on our own. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're going to see what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. This is the kind of wisdom that we're talking about here. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then before we start thinking and saying, oh, look how amazing we are. We understand these things. Look at what Paul says next. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. In other words, consider your calling. Basically, Paul is writing to the, to the Corinthians saying, consider your calling, dummies. No, I'm just kidding. But he is saying, not many of you were wise. It's not that you figure this out on your own. It's not that I figured this out on my own. None of us figured this out on our own. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the wise, brothers and sisters, are those who have received God's wisdom by grace. The wise are those whom God has chosen and revealed himself to, us, revealed himself to them. Revealed to them the mystery, or, or, you know, like Paul says, the foolishness of God, of the power of the cross. Those of us who have the Spirit of God, God has revealed to us this wisdom that we live by in the middle of exile, in the middle of this cosmic battle between darkness and God. So, 
Finally, what should the wise expect, right? So we already defined who the wise are. We already talked about how tyrants are going to tyrannize. What should the wise expect? Well, there's three things that the wise should expect. One of them is persecution and suffering. The wise will suffer. Right? Yes, it says that deliverance, that they will be delivered, but they will not be delivered from suffering and tribulation. They will be delivered in the midst of suffering and tribulation, right? And this is something that we've seen. We studied the book of Revelation. We, we've seen, we see all over the word of God that God's people should expect suffering and tribulation. Right? The prosperity gospel tells you, no, you know, Jesus is already king and therefore you should never experience hunger or poverty or suffering or sickness. But the Bible says, no, you should actually expect all of those things. But you should expect deliverance in the middle of those things. Right? Uh, chapter 12, verse 1 in Daniel. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So we, God's people will experience suffering. We also see it in, verse, in chapter 11, verse um, 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they, for some days they shall stumble. And stumble here is not talking about them, uh, uh, you know, wavering in their faith. Rather, stumbling is, is talking more about them actually suffering, actually, uh, uh, yeah, being made to suffer. They shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Brothers and sisters, it is a reality that we will experience suffering. It is an, a reality that we will experience opposition to the gospel, maybe even persecution, maybe even death for the sake of Christ, right? That's something that all of us should expect. I'm not saying that, you know, we're all going to die for the, you know, because we're going to be killed for the name of Jesus. But I am saying that we should be ready for something like that. I am saying that we should not be surprised if, There is more persecution, more opposition. But there's a purpose to this persecution. The purpose is that the purpose of persecution and suffering is for the good of God's people. It is for the refining of God's people. It is for the purification and the cleansing of God's people. Look at verse 34. When they stumble, uh, chapter 11, verse 34, when they stumble, They shall receive a little help, and, may, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So when we are going through suffering, when we are, when we are experiencing the reality of the power of darkness in our lives, we should not be discouraged. We should know that it is serving God's purpose of refining us, of purifying us, of cleansing us, of getting rid of the things that are not ready in us to see our Savior, right? God is purifying us and getting rid of sin in our lives, getting rid of weakness and getting rid of all of those things that are not ready 
for the presence of God. And, and even on a greater scale, God is refining his church. He is purifying and cleansing his church, right? It says here that some people join these other people through flattery, and they probably liked the movement of resistance of the Jews at the time. But then after persecution came, it became clear who were the true uh, uh, believers in God, who were the faithful ones, and who were there just, you know, just for the fun, just for the candy, right? And so the same thing will happen. The same thing happens in our day when the church is persecuted, the church is refined, and those who love God, those who know their God, those who are wise, they are the ones who remain. Now, the second thing that the wise should expect is they should expect to be witnesses of the gospel, witnesses of the glory of God. Notice what it says about the wise in verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. The wise among the people, they are not just there hanging out and being persecuted for no reason. They are being persecuted because they are making others understand. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn, who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we are left here on this earth so that we would turn others to righteousness, so that we would make others understand, so that we would tell others about the goodness of God, about the triumph of God's kingdom about the greatness of God's name. We are not left here just to hunker down and hide until persecution ends and Jesus comes and saves us. We are left here with the purpose of making disciples, with the purpose of turning other people to God, with the purpose of being his witnesses. And then finally, what else should we expect? We should expect everlasting life. Yes, we will experience persecution. Yes, the, the, the job of being witnesses will be difficult. But the promise is everlasting life. Look again at chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 10. Many shall, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. Verse 12. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Those who are faithful, those who are wise, those who rely on God's grace, those who witness about the kingdom of God, yes, they will suffer persecution. Yes, they, there's many things that we will suffer, but our future is secure. In Christ, our future, our life 
is hidden with Christ. I want to finish by reading Romans 8, verses 30, starting in verse 31. So please turn there to Romans chapter 8. And as we read Romans 8, let us think about the faithfulness of God. Let us think about the love of God. Let us think about the life that is reserved for those of us who are his. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring in any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you that neither persecution, suffering, the power of darkness, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from your love. God, we thank you for choosing us and forgiving us this heavenly wisdom in your son, Jesus. I pray that you give us strength to live faithfully and wisely in exile. That as we find ourselves in the middle of this conflict between your kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, that we would be faithful to you, that we would live wisely that we would make disciples of all nations. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.